and will continue as we have been in a series of messages that I have simply entitled, Follow Me. And we'll be looking at chapter 17 in Luke's gospel and uh, be beginning in verse 1 there. Set in the stage just a bit, Jesus continues in his journey towards Jerusalem and in the region of Judea to teach. He never misses an opportunity. He's teaching here specifically to his disciples as he was in the last message that I brought. Uh, but be keenly aware that his words fall upon the ears of, of a curious multitude that are gathered around him and his disciples who are listening intently, you know, uh, to what he's teaching. But even more so, be aware that there's that, that, that ragtag group of, of uh, Jewish religious leaders Pharisees, the scribes, sometimes the Sadducees, and their intent, of course, is all towards the demise of Christ and his ministry. They'd like nothing more than to somehow discredit him and ultimately destroy him. And that's their goal, if you will. And so embedded in these divine principles that we see, these truths that, can, that Jesus is teaching, are truths that can and should be applied to all of our lives, actually, as followers of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will, as you hear these uh, verses expounded upon and, and other verses, other scriptures that you'll see in the outline that I handed out or was handed out to you. Um, those are scripture references that you can go back to and, and look up in your Bible and, and reflect upon but that enhance the uh, text that we're looking at primarily today. And so as we think about the characteristics of those qualities that characterize God's people, kingdom citizens, yes, we are. We live in this world, but make no mistake about it. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. And, and one of those qualities, characteristics is this, authentic believers are mutually responsible for one another. When you think about the church, you think about the relationships that we have mutually with the Father, with the Son and the Holy Spirit, with, with God, we also have a mutual responsibility for each other. In other words, as we relate as, as believers and as fellow church members, we have a responsibility to each other. You know, as we look at this text, and think about the context. These 12 apostles who have been the closest of the followers of Christ, those he has handpicked to be his disciples, are going to be in, in a matter of months. They're going to be propelled into positions of leadership of the, the new body of Christ. The, the church is going to come into being as a result of Pentecost. Jesus knows that. So what he's teaching them related to how they relate to God and how they relate to one another and how they live in a sinful fallen world as representatives of the kingdom of God, he realizes they're going to be teaching. And we know that after Pentecost, when the church came into being, and those early disciples were, were the, the apostles of the church and, and, and the Lord was added to their number by the thousands, 3,000 5,000, we know that they had a, a great task on their hands and they regularly, they, they, we're told by Luke in Acts chapter 2, they were regularly coming together 
to hear the teaching of the apostles' doctrine. Where did the apostles get that doctrine? Right here. As they were sitting in that circle around the Lord, listening to him teach. And so one of the things that, that the Lord has taught earlier and consistently is that as believers, as fellow citizens of the kingdom, as members of the body of Christ, we are mutually responsible for one another. And as with that in mind, we look for opportunities to encourage one another. How much time do you consciously give in your relating to fellow believers? especially in the church, in this church. But then, of course, fellow believers outside the church, out in the, out where you work or out in your community. How much time do you give thinking about how encouraging are you to others? Christians are responsible, number one, to love one another. We know that this is what the scripture tells us. In Romans chapter 10, chapter 12, rather, verse 10, the apostle says, Paul says, be kindly affectionate one to another, with brotherly love and honor given preference to one another. What a challenge. Is that the way that I relate to you? Is that the way you relate to me or relate to one another? Are we always looking to show kindness and affection and brotherly or sisterly love as the case may be? Do we show honor? Through honor, do we give preference to one another? Do we put the needs of our fellow Christians, our fellow church members ahead of ourselves? Or are we always thinking about ourselves? We know in John's gospel, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, the Lord gave a new commandment. And it related to how Christians, his followers, members of the, the, the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, should love one another. Jesus made it a command. He made it a command. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so shall you love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How will they know? Because you got a cross hanging from their neck? Because they walk in a certain way? Is it because they got a big scroll up under their arms? He says, and all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So you see, we are accountable to each other. We are mutually responsible to be encouragement to one another. Christians are responsible to help one another. Christians are responsible to help one another. How willing, how quick are you to come to the aid of a brother or sister in need? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus was teaching and says, and, and whoever gives one of these little ones. Now, when Jesus is referring to a little one in that text, in, 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 in text we'll see, when Jesus refers to a little one, he's not talking about a biological child. He's talking about a child, all right, but he's talking about a child of God, spiritual children, those who are children of God. And Jesus says, whenever or whoever gives to one of these little ones, God's children, a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, most assuredly, I say to you, he will in no wise lose his reward. Any kind gesture that we can offer to fellow believers beginning in the local church is a demonstration of our love for God. And it fulfills his expectation for us. So it's not like we always have to do big things and it's okay. If, if the task calls for the church, for believers to do something big, to help somebody in a crisis, then by all means, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes it's just something as 
as, as small and menial, but yet meaningful as a cup of cold water to a dry and thirsty soul. Jesus says, I guarantee you, you will not lose your reward if that is your attitude toward fellow believers. Paul says in Galatians chapter six, verse two, he says to, to Christians, he says, be ready to bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. So against the backdrop of where we're going with the text this morning, I wanted to paint that positive picture first. We There are great and wonderful benefits to being a church member. There's, there are wonderful benefits to being a part of the family of God. And these are just a few of those positive things that can come out. I like to think of the church as not just a religious institution. It's much more than that. It's not a formal organization. Folks, the body of Christ, the church is family. Church is family. We are all little ones of God. We're all children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. But then also, as we begin to look at chapter 17, and let's read verse 1 first, as Jesus is teaching, and he's giving some warnings here. Then he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses shall come, but woe. And Jesus says, woe, it's worth stopping. Woe, warning, but woe to him through whom they come. Now, not only are believers mutually responsible to be accountable for uh, encouraging one another, helping one another, loving one another, but we also are mutually responsible to avoid causing fellow believers to stumble in sin. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, in life, in life, believers, disciples, these times of stumbling, if you will, offenses, offenses, that word in the original language, stumbling block was like a snare. And a trapper would set bait in a trap to entice that animal, or if you're fishing, that fish towards the, the trap or the hook, if you will. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, look, as you go along in this world, there are going to be those snares. There are going to be those offenses. There are going to be those things that can cause you to stumble. But then he's focusing in here on verse 2. Talk about a warning when he's talking about not causing somebody to, to fall into a spiritual trap. And we know that there are all kinds of reasons that people stumble, that you and I could stumble. There are all kinds of trap setters out there, ladies and gentlemen, in case you didn't know this. I got a feeling you do already. But we know that we live in a flesh-natured sinful body that is constantly tempting us to do the things that would be contrary to the will of God, to think thoughts that have no business in the mind of a child of God, to say things that we should never say. You see? And so we, we got to deal with the traps that our own flesh might set. But beyond that, we live in an evil world, a world that philosophically is against the flow of the Christian worldview that is constantly promoting messages that are anti-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-God. We, we live in this evil, fallen world that is constantly setting traps. Sometimes they set it on the internet. 
Sometimes they set them on commercials on television. Sometimes it'll be where you go about and do business. Oh, listen, there are all kinds of those traps out there set by the evil world. And if that's not good enough, we know that there's Satan, our spiritual foe, and his minions, the demons, are constantly looking and watching and surveying and looking. And they know our weaknesses and they know the traps to set. So Jesus is issuing a warning. Not just to unbelievers, though. The warning that Jesus is given here can also be applied to believers. And listen to what Jesus says to trap setters. Are you a trap setter? Do you find yourself at times enticing fellow Christians to do something that you know good and well is sinful, is rebelling against God? Well, you might want to listen carefully to what the Lord says. He says in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than then he should offend one of these little ones, one of my children. A millstone, we don't see a lot of those around now because we got mechanized meals that have, you know, fancy computerized machines that grind up grain and, and all of that. Yeah, I was, I'm fascinated to see modern day farmers now. They have these gigantic combines. They spread about halfway across the sanctuary, you know, with uh, cabs, with air conditioning and television, computers, you know, and, and you know, they, they, they harvest in, in 30 minutes what it would have taken a whole community of men to harvest uh, in the couple of days. And, and, and so, but, but back in Jesus's day, if you mention a millstone, they knew what you were talking about. You see, a millstone was a big, solid rock stone made in a circle with that, like an axle in it. And a mule, or donkey rather, in fact, oftentimes in the, in the vernacular of the local people, they referred to it as a donkey stone because some little donkey was on the other end of the stick or the rod and was, was, was walking along and pulling that, that millstone and that grain under the millstone, that heavy, massive stone would grind the grain into flour or, or, or into meal. And so Jesus is saying, listen, don't you think for a second that God takes lightly when anyone causes one of my children to stumble, it would be better, a better fate for you if you had one of those millstones tied around your neck and you were thrown into the middle of the sea. I don't know. There are not too many Houdinis left in the world today. I know he had a, a knack for being able to pull off in miraculous escapes thrown into water and stuff like that with chains and shackles and everything. But folks, Jesus is saying, listen, you don't want to go in that direction. There's a heavy penalty for that. And of course, the penalty for those who are sinners, those who are lost, those who are enemies of God, who entice God's people to stumble and fall and be trapped. Then, of course, that is equated into the fires of heaven and I mean, fires of hell. And that would just be their their punishment in hell would be made that much worse. But what about believers? What about authentic believers who make the terrible mistake of being a stumbling block or setting a spiritual trap for a fellow Christian? 
Well, you won't lose your salvation, but it stands to reason you will suffer consequences. God may cause you to be chastised in this life. You may suffer consequences as you live out your life in this world. But then even after that, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, after we leave this world, we will be judged. We will stand before the Lord in judgment. And in that judgment, we will be given rewards based upon our faithfulness and fruitfulness. You think the stock market is cutting into your savings and retirement plans. You ought to see what making this mistake will do to your eternal rewards. There are consequences. Jesus gives a very stern warning. But then as we move along in chapter 17, I want you to see also that faithful followers are mutually responsible to forgive. You know, first they don't ignore or rationalize or excuse sin by a fellow believer. That's not the approach that we take to the presence of sin in the life of other believers. You know, the Bible clearly teaches us that we confront sin. Look at verse three. Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day, return uh, uh, seven times in a day, returns to you saying, I repent. You shall forgive him. You see, faithful followers of Christ are quick to confront sin in each other's lives. They realize this is necessary. It's not loving when you see and you know firsthand that a fellow believer is living in sin, committing sin, and you think, well, that's just their personal business, and I hate to, I hate to be interfering in other people's affairs, and, and that's not for me, you know. I'll, I'll just pretend I didn't see it or hear about it, or make up excuses for them. Oh, they've had a hard life. You know, you don't know what they're thinking. Oh, listen, that's not the approach that the Lord gives us in dealing with sin. He says, take heed. You know, if you see a brother, and if that brother sins against you, don't slough it off. Don't, don't, don't excuse it, rationalize it. He says you go to that person and you rationalize or you rebuke them rather. You rebuke them for that sin. Now, what Jesus is teaching here in Luke 17 parallels what he teaches in, in a more expansive way as he's dealing with the matter of discipline in the church. In Matthew 18, you'll see a lot of similarities in what Jesus is saying in Luke 17. But listen to what he says also over in Matthew 18 in verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell them to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. In other words, you break fellowship with that wayward believer. And so I think it's important we stop as we look at these very pointed verses on our responsibility to deal with sin in the life of other believers, realizing that if they love you, they're going to confront you. They're going to confront sin. If you sin against a fellow Christian, it's their responsibility to confront you 
and do that in a spirit of love. So it's important to realize that the Christian's motive in confronting sin, the Christian's motive is always love. It's not loving to ignore sin in a believer's life. It's not loving when somebody sins against you to make up excuses or to just slough it off and let it roll off your back. Listen, that's not being loving. Christians are motivated by love to confront sin in each other's lives. And the, if the motive is love, the goal, the goal is not to humiliate. The goal is not to embarrass. The goal is not to put them down. The goal is restoration. That's what Jesus says. If you go to a brother and you confront them in love and point out where they have sinned against you or sinned against someone else that you know of, he says, and if they hear you and they repent, and that, that's what you want. That's what God wants. Then he says, you have gained a brother. You have restored a brother. And so that is our goal, restoration of fellowship, first and foremost between that sinning believer and the Lord. You have helped them to come back into fellowship with God, but also you have helped them to come back into fellowship with yourself and with other believers that are aware of this, and so you can celebrate with them. But then also on the flip side of that coin, just as you and I are mutually responsible as believers and part of the body of Christ to confront sin in each other's lives in a loving way with the purpose and goal being of restoration, we also have a responsibility. We are equally, we are to be equally as ready to forgive. Are you an easy forgiver? Are you quick to forgive? Or are you one of those grudge holders? You know, somebody does something, you know, and they come back and ask for forgiveness. And are you the person that says, well, I need to pray about it. I need to think about it. And you do that for 20 years. But hey, folks, listen, that's not the prescription that Jesus gives here. Followers of Christ imitate the Lord in unlimited forgiveness. Are you quick to forgive? And of course, I'm saying this in the context where Jesus is teaching here to his disciples. You'll notice the times that Jesus uses the word repent. When that person who has offended you, sinned against you, come to you and they repent. Repent is more than just being remorseful. Repent means they truly have a change of heart and attitude and mind. And if they, have to, if they have to make some adjustments in the way they live or act or whatever, they're willing to do that. And so I think it was interesting in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus had been teaching um, forgiveness and, and, um, and talking about this discipline matter and the need for, you know, the church, the Christians to forgive. And so in verse 21, uh, when uh, Peter um Peter asked the Lord, he says, you know, well, how many times do I need to forgive someone? Okay. And, and so the Lord tells Peter, he says, uh, Peter, well, Peter was being gracious. Let me get there. Then Peter came to, to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Looking for a formula. 
And, and Peter wanted to be, you know, uh, very gracious and to appear, you know, very uh, loving. He says, you know, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me uh, up to seven times? You see, Peter, Peter, like the other disciples and everybody else in that culture, had heard the local rabbis teach that you need to forgive somebody Ooh, up to three times. After that, write them off. So Peter, you know, wanted to certainly appear to be better than the rabbis. He thought, well, I'll go up to Annie. I'll go up one. How about, Lord, being the fine, good person that I am, if I'm going to forgive somebody, what if I forgive somebody seven times? And you know how Jesus answered that. And it kind of shocked Peter. Well, Jesus said in verse 22 of Matthew 18, he says, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You can do the math, but I don't think Jesus was even setting 490 as the exact time. If you listen, if you can forgive somebody a hundred times, chances are after that, you're just going to you know, write them off. I mean, just say, OK, I forgive you. I forgive you. But the point is, just as we need to be quick to confront each other when sin raises its ugly head in the life of a believer, our life, then we need to also be quick to be willing to forgive them. Christians will forgive in some instances even before the repentance comes. Now, Jesus is teaching, you know, that, that when a, if a person that has sinned against you, they come to you and say, I am so sorry. And I realized what I did was wrong. It hurt you. And I'm ready to make restitution. And I, I've already had, uh, had a talk with the Lord. And I, I'm changing my ways. And, and I want you to forgive me. And you see on their heart and in the voice, you, you, you see that repentance. Listen, Jesus says repentance is good. And it's important. And it's necessary. But do you realize that you won't always have the opportunity to hear somebody repent to you before you go ahead and forgive? I'll show you how. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. That your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Oops. Wait now, I'm, I'm in a deep time of personal praying and confessing and getting my life right with God and the Spirit of God surfaces in my heart what, what somebody did to you and hurt you and you, you're still carrying that hurt and you need to forgive them, but they haven't made their way back to you and you're here in church and it's confession time and you need to forgive them. They haven't repented. He says, go ahead and forgive them. Go ahead and forgive them. That doesn't relieve them of the responsibility to repent of the sin, but it does make you more like God, more like Christ. If you go ahead and forgive them, then there are things that you're going to bring up in your prayer time that you're going to ask God to forgive you of. And if you're harboring any degree of unforgiveness in your heart, God's not going to hear your plea for forgiveness until you make the step of forgiving the person that has offended you. So authentic believers are mutually responsible for one another. Faithful followers are mutually responsible to forgive one another. 
But humble Christians understand the need for strong faith. Jesus says back in, in Luke chapter 17, as we continue in verse 5, he says, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Hey, listen, if the Lord has just talked to you about the importance of, you know, never causing somebody else to, to stumble, if the Lord has just talked to you about the responsibility of, 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 of forgiving people and confronting others in sin, listen, he's given, given his disciples some pretty strong orders here. And their natural reply, response would be very much like my own after these kinds of, of, of expectations by the Lord placed on them. They're saying, oh, Lord, listen, please strengthen our faith. Increase our faith. Add to our faith. Supplement. Expand. Grow our faith. And, you know, I don't know about you. I find myself in that same kind of prayer to the Lord when I see the challenges that face me as a child of God, just as we talked about in, in our Christian growth group, about the call to discipleship when Jesus says, if any man come after me, you know, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I don't even look at that. and Consider that's the daily call upon my life as a follower of Christ, as a member of the church. As a, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, listen, one of the first things that comes out of my lips is, Lord, help me. Increase my faith. Make it strong. Make it good and faithful. And so Jesus' disciples are honestly admitting their feelings of inadequacy, which sometimes we will have as followers of Christ. But you'll notice that when they, they said that, now here they are, like I said, just months away from assuming the role of responsibility of leading the brand new body of Christ, the, the, the early church. They're going to be the ones that thousands are going to be looking up to. And here they are saying, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord teaches them. And, and I just love how, you know, Jesus so calmly and, and, and yet so confidently helps them to see the solution. He uses an analogy to, to demonstrate the potential of their existing faith. You know, there in verse 6. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, they're saying, increase our faith. <laughs> Make it look big and awesome and impressive. And the Lord didn't say, well, if you've got the faith of a battleship. No, he starts with one of the smallest grains of seed that you can find out there in, in agriculture or horticulture. It's a mustard seed. It's a tiny seed. But the fact is, Jesus is saying, if you have faith, even that appears to be small, he says, it's not the volume of your faith, but rather the object of your faith. It's not how you see your faith as being so impressive and big. It's not, it's not the volume of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Where is the power behind your faith? Is it you? You're in trouble. <laughs> is it your church? You're still in trouble. Or is it in Christ? Paul understood that. He wrote in Ephesians 3.20, Now unto him, pointed at Christ, 
Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Wow. Listen, I'm not trying to give you pie in the sky, you know, ideal kinds of thinking. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. Do you know there's a powerful link between your humble prayer that is absolutely committed to the will of God and the results of your prayer? That's what John was saying in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. That this is the confidence we have that if we ask anything according to his will, we then he says, we know we have that petition. It's going to happen. But the key is in God's will. Paul understood it wasn't all the 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 actions and the demonstrations and and the oratory it wasn't all of that impressive that made him look like he had great big faith the fact is he knew the one to whom he was praying and he was willing to entrust his request to the will of the one to whom he was praying that is christ for instance paul had a thorn in the flesh we don't know exactly what that was, but it was an infirmity that hindered Paul. Three times, the apostle Paul, super apostle, three times he came before the Lord and, and, and besought him concerning the thorn in his flesh. And you may recall that Jesus' answer was to say, I got it, Paul, you're healed. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer to Paul's three-time prayer request to remove the thorn in his flesh was, my grace is sufficient. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. God's not dependent upon your strength. He's not dependent upon your abilities and talents. And No. And when Jesus said that, it's like a light bulb went on inside of that, that great apostle's head. And he says, oh, I got it. And that's not in your text. You won't find that in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But, but it's, you can hear it almost in the, what Paul said next. He says, oh, well, therefore, okay, if that's, that being the case, I boast in my weakness, in my infirmities. Oh, yeah, I'll boast in my weakness. I'm not ashamed because it's in my weakness that the power of Christ comes to me. So you see, you can have faith, the volume of a mustard seed. But if it's aimed like a laser toward the throne room of God where stands the Son of God, be interceding on your behalf every day, let me tell you something. Dear friend, that's a winning combination. That's why Jesus said there, you know, he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree. Has anybody ever climbed a mulberry tree? We should sing about a mulberry tree. All right. Okay. Caroline has. Okay. You're amongst the elite. We had an old mulberry tree and uh, on our farm, and it gave off little mulberries, and we'd climb up there and pick them when they got ripe and all that. But anyway, I was reading about mulberry trees. They have an incredible root system. 
I mean, you know, they're not like a pine tree. Pine tree, first whip of wind, poof, bonk, they're over. Or Bradford pear, you know, first sign of stress, crack down the middle. Not a good old mulberry tree. They got roots that run forever. I think some of them come out in China. But the fact, Jesus is just using that as an illustration. He says, even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and, and it's my will to accomplish my purpose, and I put it on your heart to say to that deep-rooted mulberry tree, get up and go over there and jump in the sea. Plant those deep roots in the bottom of the sea. It'll, it'll, it'll do it. So he's helping his disciples to realize there is no limit to faith that is connected to the Lord. I like how Paul put that into practice in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. And I guarantee you, you have to. Paul says, I can do all things because I'm Saul of Tarsus. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm from this tribe. Oh, no, no. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How is it that a man could face the governors of his time in, 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 on trial and, and, and face mobs and be beaten and stoned and left for dead and dragged out of the city? How, how is it possible that a man could survive a shipwreck with, with soldiers who were guarding him and, and they all ended up floating on an island and, and he ends up getting bitten by a surely deadly viper and somehow he's still alive. How is it that he can make his way all the way to Rome where he would be facing trial before Nero? How is it possible? They tell us that Paul, from what we gather, wasn't like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, big hulky, you know, like you see on WWE SmackDown. Not that I watch that, but, the, you know, the big hulky... Paul was nothing impressive. I'll tell you where Paul's strength was. It was in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in his faith in Jesus. It was in his praying. When he's praying, he's talking to the one who's got the power. And guess what? Paul doesn't have the corner market on that kind of praying. You and I have access to the same source of power. His name is Jesus Christ. I want to go ahead and wrap up. One more Characteristic I want you to see as we finish out chapter 17. Kingdom citizens live and serve for the glory of the king. You don't wait till you get to heaven to bring glory to God. You don't wait till you get to heaven to give praises to God. You don't wait till you get to heaven to do the things that would please the Lord. Listen, we are to bring glory to the Lord. Right here on the earth. Look at chapter 17, verse 7. And he says, And which of you, having a servant, keep in mind, a servant, this is a, um, a house servant, this is a servant that stays with and lives with the master day in, day out. Okay? Belongs to the master. So he says, And which of you, having a servant, plowing and tending sheep or tending sheep, will say to him when he, come, when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down and eat. See, they'd be scratching their head right there. Because see, in that culture, in that social strata, that ain't going to happen. Pardon English. Okay? Servant coming right out of the field, 
working hard, you know, master's not going to say, hey, come on over here, Josiah, whatever your name is, sit in here, eat with me. Nah, that's not going to happen. In verse 8, Jesus says, but will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you may eat and drink. In other words, every servant knew they had a place. It wasn't being mean. It wasn't being cruel because that servant had a place and his place was to serve his master. Even after he's come in from the field, working hard. I know to us in our more, you know, uh, hospitable and, and considerate culture, that would be appear to be rude. But back then, that servant would say, no problem, boss. I'm going to go in and wash up. And I'll be right back out with your hot supper and something cool to drink. He would look at verse, th uh, verse 9. He says, does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Those of you that work for corporations, companies, you know, you probably get flooded with compliments from the CEO of your company. Looking, finding you and say, oh, that was just great what you did today. That's just great what you did yesterday. And man, you're so good. And you just say, just give me a check. Be happy to get that. I've worked for companies, I understand. And so in verse 10, you know, Jesus says, So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. True servants of the Lord embrace their humble place of service. Why? Because we're devoted. We're, we, are, we are motivated by deep love and devotion. We, we serve the Lord. And, you know, we don't always get accolades of praise and people patting us on the back. You don't get all the great recognition and everything like that. That sounds more like the, the proud and arrogant, egotistical Pharisees. They did what they did, but they did it to be noticed by others. They did it to be recognized by others. They did it to receive public praise. Oh, they, they drank it in. Jesus is saying, no, no, not so in the kingdom of God. You, you go and you serve the Lord. You spend your time, you know, witnessing to lost people. You, you spend your time sharing God's love in some social ministry in an in a, in a economically challenged area of the city. Or you go to a foreign third world country and you're having to make all kinds of adjustments. And, and, and you know, it's nitty gritty and whatever. And, you know, you don't expect God to be standing up and giving you a standing ovation. No more than that master would his servant. We, listen, we aren't motivated by the response of others. We aren't motivated by the praise of others. We're not expecting any special prizes, rewards. Listen, true Christians resist honor and recognition for themselves that belongs to God. So when Wendy and her Disaster relief crew, the yellow shirts, oh, gold shirts, show up on the scene. They work hard, you know, gutting out those houses of 
mildew, sheetrock, and insulation, and varmints, rodents, bugs, all that. And they do that day after day, and they're hot and sweaty. They don't get paid. One of the questions that will come up for people who are doing God's work out there just to show compassion and love, a lot of times people will ask, why are you doing this? And they don't say, well, you know, so you'll praise us. So you'll think we're great, we're super Christians. I can almost guarantee you what our sister Wendy would say. She'll say, because God loves you. God sent us. God is watching over you. And Wendy, y'all have had occasions where some of the people that have been on the receiving end of your kindness have chosen to follow Christ because they see the authenticity of God's faithful servants who are in the business of kingdom work, not so that others will be recognizing them. And I think it's okay when some of the secular agencies or news agencies or whatever say, look, look what these Baptists are doing. Coming down here in this hurricane-riddled area, tornado-shredded town, and they're doing these wonderful acts. You can tell they're struggling with, why? Why? FEMA's not paying them? <laughs> and the truth is, when we're serving the Lord, we ought to be just like this servant was Jesus says when they reply, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. When you give a cup of cold water to one of those little ones in the name of a disciple, you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. When you go out of your way to talk to an ornery, hard-hearted person about the truth of the gospel, trusting the Lord will draw them to salvation, Listen, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. When you come alongside of a, a neighbor who is grieving and distraught over a crisis or something in their life, listen, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. And I want to end with this. We serve faithfully in this life, anticipating the rewards to come. We serve faithfully in this life, anticipating the the rewards that are to come. Listen to what Jesus said in another chapter, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 and verse 37. Jesus said this, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. You see, we live for the fact that our rewards are not in this world, nor do we do what we do as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, as followers of Christ, for the recognition and the rewards here. We serve faithfully to the day we die, knowing that when we step over into glory, the Son of God, the precious Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Master, will willingly, lovingly say, come on, and you all sit down at this wonderful banquet that I have prepared for you because you are my little children, and he will serve us himself. We don't seek temporary riches 
knowing that heavenly treasures await us. Didn't the Lord say in Matthew 6.20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Yeah. How are you doing in building up treasures in heaven? The sacrifices that you make in this life for the glory of God, for the benefit of those who are hurting and struggling and in need. Listen, you're, you're investing in heavenly treasure. Everything that we own on this earth, everything we ever possess, the Bible tells us everything is going up in smoke. Nobody is going to take anything with them into eternity. The only treasures that will last and last and last and serve us and, 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 and bring great pleasure to us will be those eternal treasures in heaven that come as a result of God's people living faithful and fruitful lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you give uh, clear instructions to us through the teachings of, of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're so grateful, Lord, that your word doesn't sugarcoat things. You tell us the, the, the hard as well as the good. And Lord, through the truth, we are made free. We're made free from the, the clutches of sin, the bondage of sin, the penalty of sin. We're, we're, we're made free from the trapments of the world, the entrapments that would cease to, to snare us. We're made free from some of the so many of the empty, godless philosophies of this world. We're free to live our lives for your glory, serving you as your servants until that wonderful day we come home to be with you. Help us, Lord. Help us in our faith. Help us in our service. Help us in our love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Mark, if you would, please come and close our service as you see fit.